digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. Listeners to Digging in the Dirt may hear me ask the audience occasionally to contact me with names of people doing good things for our Mother Earth or farming and gardening. My next guest, Dave Carr, is one of our listeners who contacted me, and now here he is. Dave is lead organizer for the West Haven Pollinator Pathways. My listeners are familiar with the pathways from previous guests. The goal of this group is to install native perennial plants while building community and educating people about the importance of pollinators to support insects that are feeding our migrating birds. The projects in this area was started in 2019. Dave has been also the chair of the West Haven Inland Wetlands Commission and a wetlands commissioner, and he founded earthlobbyist.com in 2018, which we will talk about shortly. Uh, welcome, Dave. Nice to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, so tell me what brought you to the pollinator pathways? Why focus on planting pollinator friendly plants in your area and not some other problem that we have maybe like plastics or water quality? What, what, what drove you towards the pollinator pathways? When I was a member of the sustainability CT group in West Haven, we were working on our bronze certification. And this was something that was on the list. And someone else brought up pollinator pathway and I accepted the challenge. So I knew nothing about it before I started. Um, I've always grown tomatoes and basil and house plants. So this was a new thing for me. Okay. So what is it that you did? I know you've had one big project where you got some money for it. What, what was that project that helped kick off the uh, West Haven Pollinator Pathways? This was a 50-50 matching grant through Sustainable CT, where we had a proposal and uh, we received a matching grant. Our team went out and I reached out to the community. I went to the city council and, and libraries and had some meetings and collected emails. And uh, we got the uh, donor platform up and uh, received around $1,300 in donations, which cool. was Matt. And then what did you do with the money? Well, the money was used to purchase two, in, two groups of plants and bare root shrubs. So we got off to a slow start because of COVID-19 and uh, we were not able to have our in-person meetings, but we had the plants delivered from a wholesaler and then the volunteers and people who contributed got together and we installed them in some areas that we had prepared. Hmm. So how many plants did you buy and what kinds were they? I don't have the names off the top of my heads, but they were uh, they were all perennial pollinators, and we bought about 600 of them. And uh, some of the ones we bought actually came from the Wilton High School, where they also do a uh, perennial plant program. Right, and Louise Washer down there with her group. Absolutely. Well, that's good. So, you and what areas did you decide to plant them all in? Well, we started one over on the New Haven line on uh, near Marginal Drive. And uh, we 
put some along the boardwalk area in West Haven. And uh, we tried to uh, develop some other sites, but initially the big project was the one on Marginal Drive and uh, the one at Brent Watt Park, which is over near the Esom's Magnet School. And those are the two largest ones. And then we had some smaller ones that were 70 plants and you know people put them out. So uh, yeah, it was very good actually. Cool. So uh, how are they doing? Have you been over to see how they're taking? They're doing very well. I, I, it's, it's very exciting, especially at the marginal drive site because when the garden was active this summer, we could notice the difference of all of the pollinating insects around the garden. And when you would walk away from the garden, there was nothing there. So we created this little space for them that you could visibly see was working. So uh, that's that's what it is. And people see it and they become aware of it because there are signs posted. And uh, hopefully we'll have more people get involved. And that's, that's, that is the hope. You planted these on public property or these private property areas? Everything was on public property. And that was another idea that it was a community investment. Uh, I, I do encourage people who want to get the plants to say where they want the plants to be. And uh, it's, it's okay, anybody can really install them anywhere because buying them wholesale with the matching grant brings the cost of the plant down around a dollar fifty or less. So it's very affordable, which is another great thing about it. Yeah, that is good. So you have uh, people who are interested in planting on their property. Can you work with them? Absolutely. Right now, we can absolutely work with people who want to learn. And where do they contact you to find that out? Well, they can go to pollinator-pathway.org forward slash West Haven, or they could look at the uh, pollinator pathway 06516 on Facebook. And the one on Facebook has a lot of videos that, uh, you know, show our sites actually. And uh, there's a demonstration of the site preparation process. One process is installing cardboard and covering it with uh, four inches of wood chips for about three months, which kills most of the existing weeds. Oh, I get it. So explain that a little bit. Do you mow it down first and then put the cardboard down? Explain how it works. Oh, exactly. We, we, we mow it down and, and cut things, pull things out the best we can, and then cover it with cardboard that's matched so it's not overlapping. Ideally, the cardboard will all be the same thickness. And then we've had the Department of Public Works come and dump the wood chips. And you wet we it just, down? No, we have not. We I did not wet it down. Uh, rain would do that, obviously. But, uh, you know, you just basically let it sit. Yeah. And so, and after three months, what happens to it? Well, it's going to kill most of everything else that's under there. So when it's time to plant, you just have to install the plants a foot apart. They like to be at least one foot apart and just install them in the ground and make sure that the area is marked off so that, you know, maybe a, a person mowing or someone else doesn't just think it's a, a, a bunch of wood. <laughs> yeah, a bunch <laughs> of weeds, right? <laughs> Well, Which they are, basically. <laughs> a bunch of wood chips. <laughs> yeah, wood chips. And then when they sprout up, they turn, they're turn. they basically weeds. You know, we, we call them weeds, but they're really quite handy for pollinators. 
Well, actually, we try to pick ones that are attractive. I, I wasn't prepared to give, give you the list of them, but I, I do have a list of all the ones that we've installed on our site. And the uh, pollinator pathway is an incredible resource because they have a lot of ones that they've suggested we use for Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So it's a very well developed program and I'm, I'm very happy to, uh, to be a part of it because there's lots of great resources and, and people who want to answer the questions. And I've also had support from the uh, wholesaler when I have questions. So huh. Does, have you approached the state or city officials and are, are they receptive or no? The city officials in West Haven were very receptive and, and we had an original organizational meeting in City Hall and uh, they agreed with the use of the area and the Department of Public Works has been very supportive helping prepare sites and uh, do the cutting and delivering of the wood chips. So it's basically up to the members of the community to get the plants in the ground. Very cool. So what projects have you coming up? The next project will be the one behind the Aura Mason Library where I, uh, our team has prepared about 5,000 square feet. And uh, we should have the wood chips delivered shortly, which will give the site the entire winter to uh, stabilize. And uh, that could give us an opportunity to install 500 plants in that one location, as well as supplement other locations in the spring. And so you that's what you've done to that area. You've uh, laid cardboard and wood chips down and or will have, and then in the spring, you're gonna plant. Exactly. Yeah, what, why do you say that? How, do, how does that work? Well, if you have a very few amount of people actually doing it, it doesn't create as much energy because you don't have as much people experiencing it. And I think the more people that participate and the more kids that participate, the more they talk about it. And this kind of helps to increase the success of it throughout a community. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So tell me a little bit about earthlobbyist.com. Why, why did you start that? And, and what, you know, where'd you come up with earth lobbyist? That's a, a cool term. I've never heard anybody call themselves an earth lobbyist. Oh, well, when I was camping with my sons back in uh, 2018, the New York Times put out their magazine that month in August. That was uh, 30 years ago, we could have saved the earth. And I happened to bring it with me just because I wanted something to read. And I learned that uh, Rafe Pomerantz was a, uh, an intern in Washington, D.C. back in 1979, and he discovered this uh, EPA report that clearly stated that the use of uh, carbon fuels was going to create problems in the future. And uh, he started going around Washington, D.C., uh, talking to senators and carrying this 664-page report around. And uh, he, he said he was an earth lobbyist. And I, I thought that was an amazing thing. So I just uh, looked up the URL and nobody owned it. So now it's mine. <laughs> I think it's an amazing thing too. I love the name. So yeah. what, do you, what do you do there? I mean, what's earth lobbyist doing? Earth lobbyist is, is basically me at this point uh, creating this, this base of information. I go out and uh, collect articles and uh, academic research and anything that's I feel is is nonpartisan and educational and you know substantial information that continues to support the uh, reduction and elimination of uh, atmospheric carbon 
and I put it up there in a lot of different ways. There's probably uh, 20 different uh, sub pages on there. And it's something that I hope that anybody who doubts the reality of climate change would read. And I believe if they did read it, it might change the way they feel about things. So ideally living in Connecticut where people are, you know, basically a, a blue state and our senators vote for pro-environmental issues. Uh, the, the real challenge is reaching the people who elect, people who vote against the environment, which is why I have this one page called a swing state tour where we would, people would actually go to communities where, where people don't believe that climate change is happening and they don't believe that it's gonna affect their future. Uh, there's a lot of people who have uh, what I have coined as hashtag climate change denial syndrome and they have a lot of reasons why it's just not something that's important and it's a political agenda so there's a whole level of of understanding out there which is stopping us from moving ahead as a unified country to address climate change and that's why you say that it's you think it's basically a waste of time to talk to like the, the choir sort of like preach to the choir you want to go out there and talk to deniers I, I, I do. I, the people who don't believe it are uh, in, in red states. And right. uh, it's a waste of time to talk about it because there's a lot of issues and it's very scary. And I think people do need to talk about it. And, and a lot of people who want to do something, but a lot of people don't know what to do, honestly, because what, what can you really do as, as an individual? It's very difficult. And what do you think one of the things you could do is at the top of the list? One of the things at the top of the list is continue to address the large scale uh, deployment of atmospheric carbon by, by industry and uh, you know, the heavy producers, the airlines and the, the diesel trucks and the, you know, the methane gas leaks, which are not happening here. We have evolved with our emissions policy in Connecticut more than other places have. I think Connecticut's doing a good job. But uh, there's, there's a lot of issues out there that are, are all happening at the same time. And it's, I think it affects a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It's a, it's a seed of hopelessness almost if there's not a focus on, on, uh, on how we can actually control this. Yeah, it's a little bit overwhelming, isn't it? It's terribly overwhelming. I, I, they say that uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people under, under 30 are, act, are actively considering not having families because they don't believe the world is a place they'd want to raise their children, which is a tragic thing because when there's no hope, then, you know, that's, that's what Jane Goodall just said in her uh, Time Magazine article, that when there is no hope, we're, we're truly, truly in, in, a, in a grave state. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and, you know, you always have to have hope, no matter how dismal it looks, because we may be able to turn this around. And one thing I've learned is that in, in the environment, Mother Earth is completely resilient. And if we stop uh, cooking it and we stop doing the things that we do to it, it, it could rebound pretty quickly. And that's why I keep doing what I'm doing and why you do what you do, I would imagine. Ab absolutely. I, I thoroughly believe that, that the Earth is just waiting to... Uh stop being overloaded and, and start re repairing itself. I, I think that, you know, there's things that are way beyond my understanding about the, uh, you know, environmental science, but I, I certainly believe that, um, you know, money can fix climate change. That's one of my favorite, favorite hashtags, money can fix climate change because we have the, uh, 
carbon capture and sequesterization technology out there. They're saying is, uh, you know, too expensive to deploy it. Two thousand dollars a ton, but I mean, what is what? What's the cost of not doing this? Hey, uh, let me ask you a question. Why do you think environmentalism has become part of the divisive political discourse going on in America right now? I mean, what happens to the earth really affects everyone, whether whatever your politics are. Why is it so divisive to, to you know, whether you're Democrat, Republican or in between or you know, far left or far right? Why can't you embrace the fact that uh, the earth is all of our home and we have to take care of it? What, what do you think is going on there? I think it's the uh, it's it's the economic of the uh, carbon fuel industry, the entire carbon fuel industry, the way we understand it, down to the uh, failure to have net metering in, in Connecticut. It's, it's all about money and it's all about the people who are pumping the oil out of the ground and, and there's their income. And when we stop doing that, it's going to destabilize a lot of people and a lot of very wealthy organizations and uh, wealthy corporations and and they're not really ready to uh, fire the iceman so to speak you know we're just not a lot of money in, in making horseshoes so it has to be about the the greed and they cannot see a way to transition or they're not willing to stop making the money that they're making delivering the carbon energy don't you think they have grandchildren and maybe homes on the coast that are going to be inundated with water in the next 20 years i mean don't you think that they being really short-sighted absolutely absolutely and i know we're not going to get rid of uh all of the uses of fuel oil because obviously until we have a substantial battery system that can store enough energy to get us through period of of, of no solar and uh, we don't have more wind deployed uh, there's obviously a need to continue to use the uh, the carbon resource that we have, but as we continue to use less of it, uh, that, that ch changes the economy for people who are invested in that product base. Right. Yeah. It's tough. What do you think we should do? I mean, what, you know, you seem to be an activist with a lot of clear thinking about these things. And besides, like, say, planting pollinator-friendly plants, what do we do about the in the warming of the planet, what can individuals do that, that makes sense? I think individuals need to talk to people who, who don't believe this, because when you think about the people who are running the uh, gas wells and the oil wells and uh, all the people working on the pipelines and the gasoline industry, all those people, their livelihoods are directly connected to this. So uh, that's, that's why the uh, climate change denial syndrome continues because if you go to other parts of the country where people vote against you know climate repair everybody in town agrees so if, if you're the one guy who says well maybe we we should do something about it you, you can be ostracized from your community basically sure people who have always been in this industry they, they don't see themselves moving into something new or maybe they just want to try to retire or who knows what it's just very it's very tragic, and uh, it seems the oil companies have well known about what their actions were causing as we keep getting more reports coming out that of, of what they knew and what they didn't tell us. So, um, you know, it's all, it's all on board, and we're all stewards of the future, I believe, and we all have this responsibility because, I mean, we're, we're, we may not all be here in, in 50 years, but, uh, you know, the world's going to be here. And it, it wasn't meant for just 
100 years. It wasn't meant just because the combustion engine was developed in the 1880s. You know, it just wasn't the way it was supposed to be. So a lot of times when I finish up with my guests, I ask them, are you optimistic? Do you think we can turn this around? You think we are going to, you think collectively we're going to do it? Or do you think we need to see more pain before something changes? I believe we can turn it around. I believe we have the technology to turn it around. I believe more people are becoming aware of it every day. And although the steps are small and although it seems grim right now, I, I absolutely believe that if everybody reaches out to people who suffer from climate change denial syndrome, however they do it, that it's going to be something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I'm, I'm, I built this for my kids. So they're, they're going to have it when I'm, when I'm done with it. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And I think it's the right thing. I agree with you. And that's why I do this program also and talk to people like yourself. Uh, we're speaking with Dave Carr. He's a concerned citizen, activist, earthlobbyist.com is his. You want to go there and check it out. And he's also the lead organizer of the West Haven Pollinator Pathways. And it's been a pleasure having you here, Dave. I'm, I'm very happy to share the time with you and everybody else. And we'll just keep uh, moving ahead. Take care of yourself. You too. Be well. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindedirtradio.com.